our study today on the life of Elijah. Before I read our text this morning, I want to remind you that last week as we studied the life of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, we watched one of the greatest single-handed victories that a man has ever wrought for the Lord Jesus Christ. We watched a man who was brave, who went straight to the king, declared that a drought would come, that God would punish Israel for their rebellious and their Baal worship. We watched a man who went to the brook, trusted God that he would be provided for there. Then he went to Zarephath, the place of refining, and trusted God he would be provided for there. We watched him raise for the first time in the Bible. We see the resurrection of the dead as he raised this widow's only son. And then we see him go to Ahab and pronounce the judgments of Baal and said, let's have a showdown. And we had the time at Mount Carmel where the 450 prophets of Baal had a showdown with Elijah for many hours. The prophets called for fire from their god Baal. Nothing happened. And Elijah, all by himself, in a 63-word prayer, prayed for God to show up. God sent fire from heaven. It was evident that the Lord God, Jehovah, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the one true God. 450 false devil-worshipping prophets were slain. By the sword, Israel was reminded that their God was the one true God, all by the work of one man. This morning, we're going to read what happened in the days that followed. This is not years down the road. This is literally days after what we studied last week. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. I will ask you to please stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of God this morning. Then I'll allow you to be seated the remainder of service. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1 begins this way. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. That's what I just told you about. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went today's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because of the journey it is too great for you. 
So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because of the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Moholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel... All whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let us pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your divine presence. We thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you for the privilege to come together and worship you. Father, we need you. God, we need you to have your way with us and in us, Lord. God, we need You to do what we cannot, to open the eyes of the blind, to allow our hearts to hear, to save the lost, to bring us out of the cave. Lord, I pray that You'd anoint me to preach, not in man's wisdom, not with crafty words, not with uh, crafted thoughts, but in the power and demonstration of the Holy Ghost. God, that Your Spirit would move in me and through me, God, and into the hearts of others here this morning. We pray right now against every hindrance, Lord, that would try to stop what You're doing, God, that would try to take our attention from You. God, we pray that You would arrest our hearts this morning. Have Your way. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. There are a handful of ways to deal with tragedy, to deal with sickness, discouragement, death. From a biblical, uh, well, let me, re, let me say, uh, from the standpoint of the church. One way is to skirt around the issue, to 
try to act as if it does not happen, to try to find some way to go past it without really dealing with it. The second way of dealing with tragedy, heartache, sickness, sin, death, is to look the thing straight in the eyes and say, let's deal with this. This morning, I want to do that with the topic of discouragement. We've been studying the men of God in the Bible and what we're finding out, and we're not even close to being done, and we're just going to find out the same thing with every single one of them, is if they were people like us who had fault, who had failures, they had faults, they had great victories, they, they had a learning process. Last week we started with James chapter 5 and verse 17 that says, Elijah was a man like us with a nature like ours. So the lesson to us is the reality that the great people that God has used throughout history were people just like you and I. We need to quit discrediting ourselves and thinking, God couldn't do anything with me significantly. God could never use me because I've blown it, because I have this weakness in my life, because I fail here, because I fail there. What we need to do is learn from our failures. We need to get back up off the ground. We need to come out of the cave. And return, that's what God told Elijah, and be about the Lord's business. But I want to, this morning I want to ask the question, because in my personal opinion, this is the greatest flip-flop ever recorded in the Bible. I mean, th- th- to me, this is, this is amazing that here's a guy who has enough courage to say to Ahab, Ahab, you were here last week, Ahab's the king of Israel. He is the most wicked king Israel has ever known. His wife is a witch, Jezebel, the most wicked woman any king of Israel has ever been married to. They were openly rejecting the Lord God of Israel, the one true God, worshiping false gods. And Elijah goes to this man and says, you're the problem with this country. You're the reason judgments come, and I'm going to prove it to you. You get all of your prophets... You bring them all to the mount, place on Mount Carmel, and we'll just see whose God is God. That takes some courage. This was Elijah. And he didn't back out. He showed up all by himself. Once the deal was done, and Ahab said, sounds like a good idea to me, you, we'll, we'll meet you there. Elijah didn't back up. He said, I'll see you there. And he showed up all by himself. He says to the prophets, the false prophets of Baal, he says, do your work. Do your thing. Build your altar. You pick the bowl you want, you build the altar you want, and you cry out to Baal, and you see if he sends fire from heaven. And he just sat back and watched, and nothing happened, and nothing happened. Elijah said, well, maybe he can't hear you. Just cry out a little bit louder. Maybe he's a long ways off. And they begin to cry out louder. He said, maybe he's on vacation this week. I don't know. He even used a real illusion about relieving himself. He said, maybe your God's in the bathroom. He's coming, surely. Maybe he's out on the sea somewhere. And finally, after hours of failure, after cutting themselves and making fools of themselves, they said, now it's your turn, Elijah. And Elijah said, okay, yes, it is my turn, but a couple things need to happen. First of all, we're going to rebuild this altar. I'm not using the one you used. We're going to rebuild the thing. 
We're going to put 12 stones that symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. And then I'm going to dig a trench around this thing. And I want you to go get water and fill this trench. And then once the trench is filled, I want you to take water and soak the wood and soak the sacrifice. See, that's pretty brave. That's pretty fearless. Would you agree? And he said, now that that's done, now that the water has flooded this place, and now that you all are watching, let me show you who the one true God is. And he prayed a 63-word prayer, and fire fell from heaven. It licked up all the water. It licked up everything that was there. And the, and the sacrifice was, was up in flames. And it was once and forever settled that his God, the Jehovah God, the God of Israel, was the one true living God. It was an absolutely powerful, amazing, courageous victory. Last week we looked at that if you weren't here. We talked about God help that same spirit of courage rise up in us. But I just read to you that now the man's hiding in a cave. And we're not talking after years. We are talking, boom, the next couple of days. He prayed, Lord, kill me. Now, I want to ask the question, because it's an important question. How can a man go from that spirit of victory, that spirit of courageousness, to the spirit of fear that fast? What can we learn from this? Did he just wake up and all of a sudden he was fearful? The Bible actually tells us why. Look with me at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 19. Verse 2, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. She sent a messenger with a message, and it says, When he saw. What did he see? She said, as was done to my prophets, so will be done to you. All those prophets had been slain. All of them had been cut off. Can I say something before I get to what Elijah saw? That might sound violent that these 450 prophets were killed the day before. But you hear the preacher this morning when I tell you, There's something incredibly important that we cannot miss about the reality of spiritual adultery. We are talking about eternal business this morning. You need to understand that. God is an eternal God who cares about your eternal soul. God is not just concerned about your comfort here in this life. God is not just concerned about you being able to pay your bills and have health and be happier than your neighbor across the street. God is concerned about your eternal soul. And there is a real place, a final place that is forever for each and every one of us here this morning. Everybody I'm talking to has an eternal soul and you will either spend forever in hell or forever in heaven. And the devilish, wicked idea of leading people into an eternity of hell is the most wicked thing that any man could ever do on earth. And it was punishable by death. There was a reason these false, wicked, 
devil-worshipping, misleading prophets needed to die. It was the command of God. Now, Elijah was there and watched that take place. If you read the whole story in 1 Kings 18, Elijah said to the people, go get the prophets, don't let them get out of here. And it says that the people helped Elijah in the process of arresting those prophets, making sure they didn't escape, and killing them. Now, I want you to understand something. That day was a lot more gruesome than our day. They didn't have lethal injection. They did not have, you know, death by the electric chair in a secluded room where only a handful of people saw it. It was get the sword out and cut that guy apart. It was a bloody scene. And Elijah saw that the day before. It was fresh in his mind. Jezebel said, what you did to those prophets, that's what I'm going to do to you. And as he saw that, you know what turned a courageous man of God into a coward running for his life that fast? He chose to listen to and see what the enemy wanted him to see and quit listening to God. This is a principle you'll find throughout all of Scripture, not just here in this story. You remember when Jairus' daughter um, was sick and Jairus went to get Jesus and he said, hurry up, my daughter's dying, she's sick. And Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house and somebody finally comes and says, go ahead and let Jesus go his way. Let the Master go. Your daughter's dead. It's too late. We've been there. We were there. We seen her. She quit breathing. There is no heartbeat. She's dead. She was dead before we left. We're just coming to tell you it's too late. Let Jesus go his way. What did Jesus say? He said, don't worry. Your daughter will live. You see, Jairus was faced with the same decision all of us are. And I pray right now that God will give you spiritual ears to hear. Because what I'm telling you has application in every day of your life. Not just the major things, not just the huge things happening. In every day in your life, what I'm about to tell you has application. There are always two messages. Always. The flesh and the spirit. The devil and God. This world and God's kingdom. There's always two messages. And one of them says, you're going to die. One of them says, do it your way. One of them says, God isn't going to protect you. One of them says, if you stay faithful to God and you believe God and you stand for truth, something bad's going to happen to you. And God says, no, I'm in control. I'm God. I'm God over everything. There's nothing that happens outside of my power. And I will protect you. But Elijah heard what the enemy had to say. And I'm telling you as a pastor, it's a hard thing getting people to quit listening to the enemy. It's a hard thing trying to encourage people, hey, stay faithful to God. Stay faithful to God. God is your only method. He is the only way of deliverance. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. He's the way. He's the truth. And He's the life. He's all three of 
of those things. He's the path that you need to take. He's the direction you need to go. He's the truth. What He says is true. What everyone else says is a lie. And He's the life. There's no life outside of Him. Not people say, well, but this, but that. But my job said. But my wife's doing this, and my husband's going this way. But the economy's tanking, but this and that. If you want to live in fear, and you want to live your life in the cave, you keep listening to the voice of the enemy, because that's right where the enemy wants you to be. Now listen to me. Elijah was a great man of God. Absolutely great man of God. I would argue that what took place in 1 Kings chapter 18 is probably a greater feat of heroic, courageous standing for God than any of us in here in this room have ever experienced, okay? He's a great man of God. And if this great man of God could find himself all of a sudden tuned in to what Jezebel has to say that's going to happen to him, you and I are susceptible to the same problems. Here's the lesson this morning. We must be careful what we're listening to. And we must be conscious. You hear that? We must be conscious of what we hear. We must be conscious about the things that we're thinking on and what it is that we're believing. When we listen to and believe the voice of the enemy, we will always become fearful. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, it says this. Here's the answer. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And listen to this, the God of peace will be with you. What a wonderful title for God. He is the God of peace. He really is. There is peace in God. Our problem is when we're not looking to God and we're not living our life in Christ, that peace does not come. But here's the command. Meditate on these things. That is a command. It takes work. It is a choice. I'm not scolding you this morning. I'm just looking this thing head on and being honest with you this morning. Negativity is a choice. It is. All of us have our stories. All of us have things we can whine about. All of us have our stories about how this happened in our life or that happened in our life now it shouldn't have or how maybe we're going through something that's not fair now or maybe we went through something that wasn't fair when we were kids. All of us have our stuff. Okay? Negativity is a choice. What I choose to think on is my choice. And until you own that, and until you make the conscious decision, I'm going to quit listening and looking to everything Jezebel has to say. And I'm going to remember that just yesterday, my God delivered me from 450 false prophets. My God showed up. 
I'm going to remember that over the last three and a half years, my God fed me through a barrel that wouldn't run dry. He sent ravens to take care of me. He raised the dead through my hands. God can deal with Jezebel. But it takes a conscious willfulness to do that. Notice in verse 4, it says, He prayed that he might die. This is serious depression. I'm not justifying depression. I'm not saying that it's a good thing. We can learn from the negative failures of the people in the Word of God. But understand that Moses prayed something very similar in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 15. Jonah prayed basically the same prayer in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 3. We don't really see David praying that God would take his life, but we see David pray some uh, pretty serious prayers and write some pretty serious psalms about his soul being in anguish. We see that Peter left and wept bitterly. These are the heroes of our faith, guys. And I'm not saying that we should be depressed, that we should be uh, discouraged. But what I'm saying is this this morning is a real thing. And just because you're dealing with discouragement, if you are, or if you do on a regular basis deal with discouragement, Understand something. You're not the only person going through what you've gone through. Many of the heroes of our faith, they have been there. They have done that. We can learn from their example. So, one of the reasons that Elijah was so fearful, it started with him listening to the enemy. But I also want to say that one aspect of Elijah's breakdown of faith here was surely fatigue. To those of you who are actively involved in trying to be what God wants you to be, actively involved in trying to fulfill God's purpose for your life, understand that can be fatiguing. It takes a lot of emotional strength, physical strength, to stand in faith the way that Elijah did. <clears throat> the body, the soul, and the spirit are so intertwined as one, it's very difficult to separate the two. The three. But when we are in a time of intense spiritual battle, it will affect your emotional state. It will affect your physical state. I want you to understand something. I can't say it enough. Brothers and sisters, these heroes of the Bible, they were human beings like us. They are not some other group of people that we're not, that we can just learn from their example. They're human beings like us. They got tired. They got weak. They got scared. And I have no doubt when Elijah remained in his faith, continued to fight off the fears of the enemy on that, that victory on Mount Carmel, I believe, I believe it was exhausting. And then the Bible also tells us God gave him supernatural strength to get out of that place. And he outran the Ahab's chariots. I believe the man was exhausted. There's a lesson for us to know. You, you heard me, um, some of you heard me say this recently. But it is the principle 
that often our greatest spiritual victories are followed by trials. That once you've had victory on, mount, on the mountain, trials come shortly after. I don't know if it's to keep us humble. I don't know the purpose of it. I'm not God. I just know that that's my own testimony. It's been my own experience. And we read it in the Bible. We see it the experience of many in the Bible, including the man that we're studying this morning. And a lot of times we fail because we're weak. There have been times in my life where I was just about at the peak of, of, of my spiritual strength that I'd ever been in. I was in the middle of a spiritual battle. I was being faithful to God, being used by God, helping set people free, helping deliver people, helping doing the things that God called us to do. And then it seemed like when it was over, right, it's done. We won. God won. All of a sudden, it's like my body just wants to shut down. Emotionally, I don't really want to try anymore. I just want some time to break. And I'll find that during that period of time, I find myself making poorer spiritual decisions. I'm not saying it's right. What I'm saying is we need to learn from it. That's what I'm saying. We need to be conscious of it. And what I'm saying is is that just because we fail doesn't mean it it precludes us from ministry the rest of our lives. God is faithful. He remains faithful even at times when we're faithless. And that's the lesson of Elijah. It's really the lesson of all of God's servants. But I believe that fatigue set in. Jesus told His disciples in Mark chapter 6, I believe in verse 31... He said that they needed to pull away from the crowd for a time and, quote, rest. We have to be conscious of that. That There does need a time for rest. There does need a time for pulling away. And, and here's the key. What do we do when we pull away and we rest? We hear from God. That's what we do. We sit in God's presence and say, God, now you speak. I know that everything else is telling me I can't go on, that I'm going to lose, that Jezebel's going to kill me, that this is going to happen, this is going to happen. I need to get all those voices away from me, and I just need to hear you, God. It's in that place that refreshment comes. It's in that place that our faith begins to rebuild. And listen, I know that it's no easy thing. I remember when I was um, pastoring as the assistant pastor in Wellington. Um, I preached quite a bit. I taught a class every Wednesday night, college and career class. At this particular stage in time I'm talking about, I was working 60 hours every week. Some weeks, no exaggeration, there's a couple weeks I put in 115 hours. Literally working from 6 a.m. sometimes till 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning and sleeping at my job and waking up and taking a shower and then going back to work. I don't recommend that. Let me say this to those of you who use work as an excuse not to be in the house of God. Never once, not once, as I stand here before you, before God, never once did I ever miss a Wednesday service or a Sunday morning or a Sunday night because of that. Never. Now, I remember though, I just felt myself breaking. I mean, you, you, we're not made to run that way. We're not. We have to learn to take care of our bodies. We have to learn to take care of our souls. We have to learn to take care of our spirits. We have to take care of ourselves, folks. 
You have to be able to identify when you are breaking apart and say, I have got to stop. I'll never forget, I got home at about 6.15. Church is at 7. I lived in Clearwater. I had about a 30-minute drive, so I had 15 minutes to shower, change clothes, eat something, get in the car and go. And I planned it all out so that I could be there right on time. What I hadn't remembered is that my car was out of gas. And I did not have time to get gas. And if you know me, one of the things I'm obsessive compulsive about, I will not be late. When I say I will be there at 323, I will be there at 323. If I say I'll be there in 35 minutes, I'll be there in 35 minutes. For me, 7 o'clock doesn't mean 7.02. It doesn't mean 10 after 7. It means 7 o'clock. So, if you ever want to set an appointment to meet, be on time. I knew I didn't have time to stop and get gas, and I wasn't going to be five minutes late to church. And so, I remember taking back roads to cut off about four miles. And, but then I thought, um, what if I, if, if, if I, if I do not make it, there is no, there is no way I'll be out here for hours. I remember I was about 10 miles from Wellington on some really torn down road. And I thought, this is going to run out of gas and I'm praying. I'm saying, God, help me get there. And I will never forget that moment. God speaks to me about the state of my soul about my emotional state, about my spiritual state. God said, Joplin, I'm not so concerned about you running out of gas in this car. He said, what are you going to do when you run out of gas? He said, there's people waiting for you at that church to bring them life. And if you keep running on empty, eventually you're going to run out. And you're going to let somebody down, and somebody's going to get hurt. And I realized at that moment in my life, I'm going to have to slow down. I'm going to have to find a way to stay a whole lot more recharged emotionally, physically, and spiritually than I am. I cannot continue to function at this capacity much longer. I will run out of gas. And when I run out of gas, somebody's going to be hurt. Somebody who's depending upon me to show up is going to sit there and sit there and sit there and I'm not going to be there. It's important we learn to take care of ourselves. And I'll tell you, when you get to that place when you're not taking care of yourself, when you're not feeding yourself spiritually, when you're not resting, you'll find yourself thinking these crazy things that whoever would have thought he'd sit there and pray to die. But he did. Okay, so it tells us that in verse 6, he, he wakes up, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. We see that an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat, in verse 5. More than likely, this angel was in the form of a man. Uh, angels commonly did that. We even see in the New Testament, it says that sometimes you entertain angels unaware. The only way that would even be possible is if the angel had taken on the form of a human being. Otherwise, we would know. 
And this angel baked him a cake, gave him a jar of water. I want you to notice something. God met the need for the physical recharging through food. And He met the need for emotional recharging through sleep. Sometimes, one of the most spiritual things you can do is just relax, take a nap, get some sleep, and eat healthy. Get something to eat. Eat healthy. I'm talking from experience. I do know what I'm talking about this morning. That's not all there is to being a spiritual man. That's not all that there is to to being able to stay strong for God. But it is important. You need to be able to know when you're crashing and be able to rest. So he does this. And now after, notice he gets up and he eats and then he takes... He goes back to sleep. I'm telling you, the man was exhausted. Ministry can be exhausting. So he arose and he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave. I want you to see that even though God had met his need and helped him to get emotionally recharged, helped him to get, to get his uh, food in his belly, he was still so devastated by the fear that Jezebel was going to hunt him down that he goes into a cave. Caves are a dangerous place to live. People who live in the cave, they're people who are despondent. They're people who are lonely. They're people who are frustrated. Let me say something about you today if you're in a cave. I'm willing to come to you the same way God came to Elijah and say, come up out of that cave. But I'm not going to come and stay in that place of darkness and gloom and, and, and just blah with you. I've seen folks, I was one of them at one stage in my life, who lived their life in the cave and really want to blame everybody else for their loneliness. Hey, it's not that people don't want to be around you. It's just that they don't want to come into that cave and get trapped in that thing with you. And you've got to come out of that. God did not design you. You were created by Him and for Him. He did not design you to live your life in a cave secluded from the world in loneliness and depression. You've got to come up out of that place. But I'll tell you, when we're depressed, when we're discouraged, we just don't think straight. I pray this morning, somebody that's depressed, somebody that's discouraged, that what I say right now, I pray that it will help you. You have to come to the realization that you don't think straight when you're depressed and discouraged. You've got to be honest with yourself. Quit justifying all your reasoning. Quit justifying all your thoughts. Quit thinking in your head, if I could just set that pastor down and tell him my story, he'd say, I should feel just the way I feel. No, I wouldn't. I'd tell you this. That's terrible. And I am terribly sorry to hear all the pain you've been through. But God is bigger than your pain. And He still delivers. And He still has a plan for your life. And His plan for your life is to come out of that dark cave and into the light and get back about His business. That's what I would tell you. That's what I tell you this morning. But we don't think rational when we're in that place. A lot of times we don't even listen to anybody. We don't want help. We just want the world to agree that we should be miserable. 
And if they won't, we'll find a cave. We get away from all the world. He goes to the cave. And I want you to know what God asked him. What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, that's a great question to ask ourselves at any time. What are you doing here? Why are you here? Ask yourself that question at work. Ask yourself that question at your gatherings with your friends. Ask yourself that question this morning as you sit here and listen to the preacher preach. What are you doing here? Why are you here? That's what God asked Elijah. Elijah tells the Lord, basically, I have been such a great person for you. I've been zealous for you. And your children have forsaken your covenant. And I alone am left. That's what he said. You see, that's how we like to feel. I'm the only one in the world going through what I'm going through. No, you're not. And you're also not the only one left. But he felt that way. Then God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountain. God was not in the wind. There was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Once you understand something about this passage, it's actually a rebuke to Elijah. Elijah came to the out part of the cave, into the light. And we see God use nature to perform miracles. There was a great wind that broke apart rocks. That's what it says. Spiritual things are difficult to explain in natural terms. I don't know what kind of wind this was, but I've never seen a wind that tore apart rocks. I've seen wind tear apart homes. I've seen tornadoes level homes, but the foundation remains. I've never seen wind demolish rocks. But what he saw did, God was reminding Elijah, Elijah, I am still God over nature. I chose to use you. I could have wiped out those prophets myself with one single breath. If I chose, he reminded Elijah of how powerful God is and therefore how silly it is that Elijah is running in fear. There was a great earthquake, a great fire. I wonder what the fire was like. I wonder if there was a burning fire in the sky that did not burn all of the nature around it. I don't know what it was. God revealed Himself to Elijah and reminded Elijah that God's the all-powerful God. He is God over everything, folks. He is God over nature. And there's one final thought I want you to think about this morning. I pray for those of you that are in any form of rebellion in your life right now, doing something you know you shouldn't be doing, that you listen careful to this. The wind, the earth, the fire, they all obey God. Nature obeys His very command. Many of you do not. You were made in His image. Nature was not. Man was made in the image of God. And all of nature obeys the Word of God. But man often does not. 
Man looks God in the eyes and says, no. This is what God was reminding Elijah. It's interesting, then comes the still, small voice. If you're going to hear God, you're going to have to learn to hear Him in the still, small voice. All of us want God to speak in the fire, in the earthquake, in the wind. But it happens in the still, small voice. And I want you to notice. Verse 13. He, Elijah wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I'm not going to say it's impossible. I'm not going to say it never happens. But I'm going to tell you on the authority of the Word of God. If you want to hear God speak, you're going to have to come out of your cave. You're going to have to come out of that cold, dark place of seclusion and come into the light and say, God, speak. And I want you to know the deeper that we go into the cave, the more we think and and somehow that we can control God and somehow if we get angry, God's finally going to answer by fire. Learn the lesson of Elijah. It doesn't happen that way, friends. God speaks in that still, small voice. In order for us to hear God in the still, small voice, we are going to have to get past the earthquake, past the noise, past the fire. You're going to have to learn to come out from everything that tries to distract you, that tries to discourage you, and get into that place where you can hear the still, small voice of God. Now, here's what I want to finish with this morning. God asks Elijah again, What are you doing here, Elijah? God's asking somebody this morning, What are you doing? How long are you going to run? How long are you going to hold on to excuses to remain in your sin? Come on, be honest with yourself, friend. You're miserable. The cave is no place of life. And yet, in some strange, self-deluded way, you want to live there. Come up out of that place. Come back into the light and the life of God. He has a plan for your life. What are you doing there? How long are you going to stay in this place? That's what God asked Elijah. Elijah answered the same way before. He's still frustrated with God. He says, they seek to take my life. Look at the Lord's response in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way. God didn't rub it in his face. God didn't try to make him feel terrible. He had already spoke. Conversation was done. Now here's God's command to the prophet who had turned in fear, believed Jezebel over God, ran and hid in a cave, asked God to take his life. We're talking a pretty colossal flock. Not very courageous compared to last week. Would you agree? 
You know what God said to him? Get back to work. That's what he said. Come out of that cave. I got something to say to you. And it's still a small voice. Return the way you came. And he just gave him some instructions, like God does a prophet. That's what he did. He said, I want you to go to this person and anoint him king. You're the prophet. You're the one that still has the authority to do that. You're still my voice. You're still the one that I'm going to use. You're still my authoritative voice to all of Israel. I don't care if you just made a fool of yourself the last couple of weeks. You're still my prophet. Now get up and go do what you do. You anoint that man king. You anoint this man king. And it's coming, Elijah, where I'm going to take you up out of this world. And so you're going to have to anoint your predecessor. Here's where you'll find him. You go to him and you anoint him. God just said this, get back to work. This morning, that's what I tell you. Maybe it's ministry. Maybe it's, it's just truly being surrendered to God the way you're supposed to be surrendered to God. Maybe it's an area of faithfulness in your life that you just totally let down on. Whatever the area is, that's what I'm telling you this morning. Come up out of that cave. Listen to God this morning. Listen to Him. Get back to work. You know what? Uh, Romans chapter 11 and verse 29 says. It says the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable and without repentance. That's what it says. But I've been running from God for ten years, preacher. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. God's plan hasn't changed. Hadn't changed a bit. What God created you to do, He created you to do. God did not make a mistake. God was not in error when He said, You, my friend, I have a plan for your life. Here's what it is. God was not in error. And by the way, God knew long before He ever called you that you were going to fall on your face and make a fool out of yourself. God knew that Elijah was going to do what Elijah did before God ever granted him that great power on Mount Carmel. And God knew that before it was all said and done, He was going to come to Elijah in that cave and say, Son, come up out of that thing. What are you doing here? Did you forget who I am? What are you doing listening to Jezebel? You've never believed anything she had to say anyway before. All of a sudden now she said you're going to die and you're terrified. Come on. Return to where you came from. Go do the work I tell you to do. Folks, that's real. That's real this morning. I'll ask our worship team to come. That's as real as it gets. That's life. It's real life. It's not always easy. Serving God is not always easy. There's a Jezebel in this world that wants to discourage you and think that if you keep doing what you're supposed to do, if you stand up, you're just going to die. Uh-uh. Our God is for us. Our God is with us, and greater is He that's in me than He that's in this world. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. I don't know what I'm going to go through, but I thought about this as I was studying. Hey, the man was praying to die. I thought, well, if you're going to die, man, I'd rather die a martyr standing for God than die a coward in a cave. Lord, help us to think like You want us to think. God's not done with you, friend. I don't care how much you've blown it. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to God either. I don't care how much you've blown it. God is not done with you. 
If I could say that 500 times over right now and know that on the 500th time it would click in you and faith would rise up and you would see it, I give you my word I would say it 500 times over. I would. I would. God does not want you to live discouraged and defeated and the rest of your life in a cave. His calling is irrevocable. His plan for your life is solid. He has not changed. He is not going to change. And He stands this morning and says, Please, come forward out of that cave. Go do what I called you to do. Just return. This morning, will you come? Will you return? So you thought you had to keep this up. All the work that you do, so we think that you're good, and we can't believe it's not enough. All the walls you build up are just glass.